Um, this week I looked up on Wikipedia the subject of tortoises and, um, and it said on Wikipedia with great understatement this is what it said generally tortoises are reclusive animals what an understatement that is they shrink their heads into their shells and hide away from the outside world the tortoise in a way has become a symbol of shyness isn't it and even fear and hiding away in your shell sometimes we even say don't we about someone such and such a person has really come out of their shell recently and it's the tortoise analogy isn't it the problem I want to consider with you this morning is that Christians can be like tortoises and can shrink back into their shells I'm obviously not talking about shyness but this, this is my subject for this morning from these few verses how to live for Jesus in a hostile world and I hope by the, by the end our kind of psychology and our understanding of these verses will help us not to be a tortoise like this picture but to be confident as Christian people there's a temptation isn't there for Christian believers to retreat into their shells for all sorts of reasons um, we've, we've, we've been going through this letter 1 Peter and Peter's writing here to people who are struggling and suffering because they're Christian believers they're suffering what we call persecution they're intimidated they're fearful and I'm sure for them they're tempted to retreat into their shells talking to other people about Jesus in that sort of climate can be very very hard for sure in some places as you'll know it is completely illegal to talk to anyone about Jesus and people are beaten and frightened into silence just the um, one of the recent copies of this magazine Open Doors uh, had this article just let me read uh, these these words to you uh, Pastor Rashid Emanuel, age 32, and his brother Sajid ministered to the poor in Pakistan. In January, Rashid wrote in his newsletter, I am very happy to let you know that the Lord Jesus is blessing our ministry and we are winning many new souls for the Lord Jesus. On the 1st of July, his phone rang and a man claiming to be a school teacher asked to meet him at a railway station. When Rashid arrived, he was surrounded by policemen who showed him photocopies of a three-page document apparently bearing his signature and he was arrested for blaspheming the Prophet Muhammad. A few days later, Sajid went to protest his brother's innocence and he too was promptly arrested. The following week, hundreds of enraged Muslims paraded through a predominantly Christian area calling for the immediate death of these two Christian brothers. Some chanted, hang the blasphemers to death immediately, sources said. On the 14th of July, handwriting experts indicated that the evidence against them was unreliable, but the following Friday it was reported that some mosques had been heard to call for the homes of Christians. Rashid and Sajid were due to appear in court on the 19th of July. They were outside the court when five masked men opened fire. Sajid died on the spot, Rashid 
a little while later. What, a, what an environment to live in. And uh, we, we could go on and talk about many stories like that, couldn't we? Two brothers serving Jesus, wanting to share the gospel with people. And it cost them their lives. In some places, the state will tell you what to believe. In other places, the state will tell you not to believe. It amounts to the same thing, really. Many believers all around the world are persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus, either because the culture wants them to believe in something else or because the culture wants them to believe in nothing. In some ways, it's very hard to identify with persecution because on one level, I don't really feel qualified to, to preach <laughs> on this subject. I, I think it's worth saying also that you're not qualified to listen because we, we, what kind of persecution do we suffer compared to that? We don't do it. But our culture maybe is more subtle than this. Our culture, in effect, says you can believe whatever you like so long as you do it in private. So we might not suffer violence or intimidation or be beaten into silence. The reality for us is it just isn't cool or acceptable. And so we're embarrassed and intimidated into silence and we retreat into our shells for very different reasons. Well, Peter's aim here is not just to comfort suffering Christians and say they're there. Of course, that is part of what he's seeking to do. What he really is aiming for is that they be brave and be what they're called to be. He's wanting to light the fires of their enthusiasm and courage. He doesn't want them to be defeated or silent or anemic Christians. He wants them to be strong. I think there are people who genuinely believe that Christianity is a bit wet and weak. But the language that Peter uses here in these verses speaks of energy, vitality, courage and bravery. He does not want them to be shrinking violets, but strong oaks with deep roots, stable, secure and brave. Living for Jesus in a hostile world. Well, that's our title. Well, here's the deal. We're going to break these few verses up uh, this way. What I want to talk about is four reasons that might cause a Christian believer to retreat into their shell and be silent. And I think Peter touches on four separate issues in these few verses, and we'll deal with them one by one. I want to deal with the first one the most, so don't worry if we take most of our time with that one second one a little bit and the last two are more practical and we'll touch on those but hopefully by the end this will be very clear first of all I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons why Christians will remain silent is fear that's an obvious thing to say isn't it and perhaps this is the main one I want to dwell here just for a little while because Peter dwells here fear generally I think is very prevalent 
in our society. Would you agree with that? I hardly need to give you a list of all the things that people fear. Uh, you know them all. Uh, fear of the future, fear of losing my job, fear of rejection, fear of poor health, fear of being wrong, fear of missing out, fear of getting old, fear of death, fear of sudden catastrophe, fear of terrorism. We live in a culture that, more than any other, I think, is saturated with all kinds of fear. Some of you know the American writer Max Lucado. He's written a book recently called Fearless, and uh, I would recommend it. And he deals with this whole subject. He, he says that fear is like the school bully, muscling into the room, shouting and posturing, threatening, and you just can't get him out of your mind. The problem is, he never does any good at all. He sucks the life out of you and, uh, and kills your confidence. Ricardo says this, these are very profound words, fear never wrote a symphony or a poem, negotiated a peace treaty or cured a disease. Fear never pulled a family out of poverty or a country out of bigotry. Fear never saved a marriage or a business. Courage did that. Faith did that. People who refused to consult or cower to their timidities did that. But fear itself, fear herds us into a prison of unlocked doors. Wouldn't it be great to just walk out? Imagine your life wholly untouched by angst. What if faith, not fear, was your default reaction to threats? If you could hover a fear magnet over your heart and extract every last shaving of dread, insecurity or doubt, what would remain? Just imagine a day, just one day, absent the dread of failure, rejection or calamity. Can you imagine a life with no fear? Well, we need to read the rest of the book. <laughs> Do you know that in the Gospels, Jesus himself waged war on fear? Do you know what, what the most significant command of Jesus is in the Gospels? Some people might say, love one another. It's a very <coughs> significant command. The most significant command of Jesus in the Gospels are all variations on the theme, do not be afraid. Jesus wages war on fear he knows that fear will crush our confidence and drain our faith fear stops us remembering what God is like it paralyzes us and makes us risk averse so that we just live in our comfort zones he, Jesus knows too that fear makes us very controlling we often respond to fear, don't we, by trying to cling to the things that make us feel safe and the things we feel we can control. But when things happen then that we can't control, our anxieties begin to spiral. I think it's fair to say that Peter himself, who's writing this letter, knew what it was to be afraid. So he's not speaking as Superman here. Peter knows both the crushing regret 
of what it feels like to be a coward with a servant girl by a fire when she said to him do you know Jesus and he swore that he didn't and Peter knows what it feels like to have that angry rush of blood that tries to fix things without thinking first the sword comes out and he latches so Peter isn't writing here from an ivory tower he's not Superman and I think we would do well to listen to what Peter says here about fear well I said I wanted to linger on this first point just look with me at these verses I want to give you three little subheadings here the first thing that Peter says I want you to notice in verse 13 is here's a general principle if you want to be safe generally do what's right that's what Peter says in verse 13 who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good I think this is such an obvious wise principle it makes me think about films about the mafia this you know if, if you want to have a dangerous life be a mafia boss your life will be killing and revenge and assassinations but you'll always be looking over your shoulder Peter is a, he's too, that's an extreme I know but if, if you want to have an unsafe life be obnoxious be awkward be difficult be a thief you'll always be looking over your shoulder and you'll never be safe if you want to be safe in life generally as a principle if you do what's right generally speaking you will be more safe than if you do what's wrong Peter's words are forceful though he isn't saying just don't live a bad life is he? he says be enthusiastic about doing good he quotes from Psalm 34 doesn't he and in verse 11 he says if you want to live the good life the man who wants to live the good life must turn from evil but he doesn't stop there he must turn from evil and do good one of the issues with the kind of Christianity that's practiced today is that it's all about well we don't do that we don't do that we don't do that it's all about turning from evil what about doing good if you want to be safe be enthusiastic Peter says in doing good the word in the Greek that word eager is the word that we get the word zealous from do you know in Jesus' day there was a political group called the Zealots one of Jesus' disciples was a Zealot Simon the Zealot these people were known for not caring about anything or anybody else but their cause all that they were obsessed with was getting rid of the Romans and they didn't mind if it cost them money their marriage, their friendships their whole reason for being was to get rid of the Romans they vowed to return evil for evil abuse for abuse they vowed to stand up to it and not lie down like a doormat and take it so Peter knows Simon a zealot and he says here who is going to harm you if you are a zealot not to crush the Romans but for good this is what Paul says in another place the Christian life actually is he wrote to a man called Titus who was church planting on the island of Crete what a great place to be a church planter that would be apparently the Cretans had a reputation for being lazy greedy and dishonest they were slobs that was their cultural reputation Paul says it people had little poems he used to write about the Cretans 
Paul says to Titus as he's church planting in that place that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify a people that are his very own eager to do what is good Paul's point to Titus is teach them about Jesus tell them to wake up and stop being lazy and to start being eager and zealous to do what's right Peter's point here I think is that even in the world generally people don't argue with people who are living a life that's poured out for others to be even the most wicked people don't like to harm the harmless you get that point? Proverbs chapter 16 and uh, verse 7 there's a verse there that touches on this just one little verse where the, the writer of Proverbs says when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord he makes even his enemies live at peace with him do you remember that verse when a man's life is good even his enemies can respect that so Peter's point here is if you want to be free of fear generally speaking it is a good principle that if you live a good life you'll be safe but Peter's words are very wise because he knows that living a good life isn't a guarantee of a suffering free life this is not a bargain that you can do if I do this for you God you will keep me safe from all harm we've already read the story of two brothers shot dead outside the court just for being Christians there in Pakistan generally speaking if you're eager to, to do good you'll be safe but Peter says in verse 14 but even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed there's a possibility that, it, that you may suffer that's the point Peter's making isn't it God may call you to suffer in justice for Jesus sake in chapter 1 and verse 6 he says to them you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials in chapter 4 and verse 12 I think it is he says don't be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering you may as Christian people have to suffer but Peter urges them to take a long term view doesn't he can you see what he's doing even if you should suffer for doing what's right you are blessed what on earth does he mean I think there's another possibility that when Peter says who is going to harm you what he really means is no one can ultimately harm you if God is for you again Psalm 34 that he quotes it all hangs together in verse 12 for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous he sees, he knows, he cares and when his people suffer injustice when they're doing what is right God knows all about that his face is not against you his eyes are upon you and ultimately I suppose you could say people suffer in this world 
But there is a world to come. Peter's kind of giving them a long term view. People can hurt you, but they cannot destroy you. They can unfairly treat you, but they have no power to change your status before God. They cannot destroy your Christian life. They can kill the body, but they cannot harm your soul. Suffering may come, but even if it does come, Peter says, you are blessed. You are blessed. You are truly happy. Peter's argument here is that it is better to be godly and to suffer for it than to be ungodly and to fall into God's hands. Well, Peter's point is you need to fight fair by thinking clearly, not just about the here and now, but about eternity too. Remember who you are, where you're going, and let that destiny shape your behaviour and help you to reflect on the fact that even when suffering comes, you are blessed as a child of God. Well, that's the first um, couple of clauses there. Uh, the, second, the third thing sorry, that I want to say is that the antidote to fear really is faith. He says in the, the end of verse 14, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. Um, these words are from the Old Testament. He's at it again. <laughs> we were talking about this last week, weren't we? Peter, he's always quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 34. Now he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. And I think it would be just instructive for us to have a little think about the background to this bit that's in quotation marks. These words of God were spoken to the prophet Isaiah 700 years BC. And um, let me just give you some geography so that you can, we can understand what, what's being said here. If you're interested, you can find the history uh, for this in 1 Kings chapter 15 and 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 but I want us to get Isaiah's perspective on this um, in Isaiah 7 and 8 so let, let me help us and we'll, we'll turn to Isaiah in a minute here's a little map of the Middle East the nation of Israel God's people split into two and part of the reason for that was that the northern part which is middle man eventually Assyria even conquered Egypt to the south so you can get the idea that these guys were the superpower I just read some notes in one of my Bibles it said this the brutal Assyrian style of warfare relied on massive armies superbly equipped with the world's first great siege machines manipulated by an efficient corps of engineers psychological terror however was Assyria's most effective weapon it was ruthlessly applied with corpses impaled on stakes severed heads stacked in heaps and captives skinned alive when Assyria was coming you knew we need to do something about this quick. And many of the countries in this region had to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to stand up and fight and be crushed and our heads put on stakes? Or are we going to kind of negotiate? Some nations were pro-Assyria and negotiated terms. And there was a previous king of Israel who did that. You can read about it in 1 Kings 15. A king called Manahim. He negotiated and paid a very hefty tribute to avoid being annihilated by Assyria. But a later king didn't agree with that policy. I don't know whether he was like William Wallace or what. 
we're not go- we're going to die fighting that's the, that's the spirit you know we'll put our kilts on we'll paint our faces blue and we'll go and even if we die at least we've been patriotic so a later king of Israel thought we're going to fight what he did was he, he, he basically put the, uh, he went next door shook hands with the king of Syria and said if we fight together we'll be bigger and they said okay then and then they knocked on Judah's door the king of Judah wasn't a godly man but he said no way I'm not joining forces with you scumbags up in the north so they decided to attack him if you won't come and join us we'll just attack you and put one of our kings on your throne and then we'll fight Assyria so you can this is big picture stuff this is political stuff going on these are powerful men this is a whole region's history at stake and the people are afraid and the prophet Isaiah who has recently seen his vision of God's glory in Isaiah 6 this is the first great task for this godly man he's got to advise an ungodly king in Judah what should this what does God think the king of Judah should do now the big bully boys coming from the east the two guys up in the north are coming to attack what on earth is he going to do well let's go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 7 very quickly Isaiah 7 this is a good example of what we talked about last week piece in the Bible together trying to work out what these different things mean Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1 when Ahaz the son of Jotham the son of Uzziah was king of Judah king resident of Aram that's Syria and Pekah son of Remaliah king of Israel marched up to fight against Jerusalem so the guys from the north are on their way and they want to fight they won't join us we'll just conquer them verse 2 the house of David was told Aram or Syria has allied itself with Ephraim some of the name for Israel so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken like trees of the forest are shaken by the wind ever felt like that? shaken to the core quaking in their boots you can almost hear the knees knocking their hearts melting verse 3 the Lord said to Isaiah go out to meet Ahaz God has got something to say to this wicked king and what he says to him what Isaiah says to Ahaz on God's behalf you can see it there in verse 4 be careful keep calm and don't be afraid do not lose heart because of those two smouldering stubs of firewood they're plotting and plotting God says through Isaiah verse 7 this is what the sovereign Lord says it will not take place it will not happen for the heads of these countries are just men your head is God me it doesn't matter how big the enemy is the enemy plus anything is no match for you plus God that's what God's message was to Ahaz and the very last verse at the bottom of the page verse 9 Isaiah says to him as a closing encouragement if you do not stand firm in your faith you will not stand at all isn't that a great verse 
If you do not stand firm in your faith, the only thing that will protect you now is not the size of your army. The thing that defines you as a godly king, the thing that defines Judah as God's people, is not their cleverness, their intelligence, their army, but their faith in God. That's what makes them God's people. And if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Do you know what Ahaz did? He said, Isaiah, get lost. I'm not interested in trusting God. These guys are big. And he sends a message to the king of Assyria, Tiglath, and says, please come and help me. And he doesn't disappoint. This guy comes marching down the road, chases Syria, puts to death their king, takes half of Israel into exile. For a minute there, it looks like Ahaz has made the right decision. If you turn over the page you'll see what God's response to that is in chapter 8, part of chapter 7 and chapter 8 that Assyria will become God's instrument to punish Judah and Ahaz particularly for his unfaithfulness to the Lord God. Instead, Ahaz's mode of operation was praying, that's for sissies. Who's going to pray in a situation like this? What's God going to do? I need real help. And he goes off to sort out his problems in his own way. This is big picture stuff, but isn't it instructive? The quote that Peter uses, though, isn't about Ahaz. We're not concerned with Ahaz. He's an ungodly king who does the wrong thing. What, what Peter wants you to do is put yourself in Isaiah's shoes now. You've got a king who's just negotiated with the bully. And God is saying to you, tell him he's doomed for being unfaithful. Isaiah's now got to go back into the royal court and say, because of what you've done, Ahaz, Assyria might help you for five minutes and then they're going to smash your lights out, mate. Because God is very angry with you for not trusting in him. Put yourself in that. Would you like to take that message to a king? I don't think I would. <laughs> Do I really have to go, Lord? Yes, you do, Isaiah. This is my word to this king, and you're my prophet. Go and tell him. The people were saying that Isaiah was a traitor. This is treason. People were saying and whispering in the royal court, Isaiah just wants to replace Ahaz with his own king. Can you imagine the political intrigue that's going on? It's another story that would make a great film. Isaiah speaks God's word in a hostile environment and he's frightened and this is the verse that Peter quotes it says to Isaiah in verse 12 do not call conspiracy dread it the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy it doesn't matter what these guys do I'm the sovereign Lord put your hope in me and he will be a sanctuary and Isaiah says down there in verse 17, unlike Ahaz, he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. In the face of all this fear and intimidation, Isaiah puts his trust in God. That's what Peter quotes. Shall we go back to 1 Peter now? <laughs> I think it's really important to get that history. So Peter here, in verse 14 he just quotes it he doesn't say anything else do not fear what they fear 
Can you see the point of that comment now? These Christians are living in a hostile country. Not Assyria, but Nero. Their jobs are being lost, their lives are being taken, and Peter says to them, don't be afraid. Your God is bigger than all of your enemies put together. Don't retreat into your shell. But be brave. Be strong. The thing that will stop you speaking for Jesus in a hostile world more than anything else is fear. And the antidote to fear is faith. If you're afraid of speaking for Jesus, the antidote to that is to trust God more than you fear man. That's the point of what Peter's saying. I want to touch on there three other reasons very quickly. The next one's closely linked. Fear's the first one. Hope we've got that. The second one is indecision. Um, this is closely related to fear, but let me explain. Peter sums up by saying, Do not be frightened. Verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. The idea of setting something apart, that, that's not an uncommon idea for us, is it? If you won a trophy, you, you wouldn't just kind of... I remember when Liverpool won the European Cup and Phil Thompson, the captain, said that he'd taken the cup back to his hotel room and slept in bed with it. And it kind of, you know... And then he, and then he took it home and took it down to the pub in Liverpool or something. No, with a trophy, normally... And eventually, you set it on a pedestal, don't you? You set it apart. It's precious and special. And this phrase, to set Jesus apart as Lord, what it really means is you need to determine in your heart to put Jesus in his rightful place in your heart. We're not talking about a politician here. Jesus is the Lord of glory. And to set him on, a, on the pedestal, the throne of your heart. To make him your king and Lord and to build your life around his priorities. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. The reason I use the word indecision is because for many people this is not clear, is it? This is where the battle's won and lost, isn't it? It's like sometimes as Christian believers we just want to hedge our bets. As if we're waiting for a better offer to come along. You know, I want to look like a Christian but you know, it might not work out so I won't kind of go out all in. I'll just hedge my bets. It's like we say, I will set Jesus apart as Lord once I've sorted out all these other issues. And there's indecision there. You cannot live the Christian life in that kind of double-minded way. Peter is urging them to get their priorities straight before they go into battle. You can't speak for Jesus if you're not sure whose side you're on, can you? It's like running onto a football pitch and asking, which way am I supposed to be kicking? You, you know, you can't do it. And I want to say to you, the real battles of life are not won in public, they're won in private. 
beforehand you need to settle it in your heart that when it comes to the crunch only Christ matters can I say that again only Christ matters other things are important but nothing is more important than Jesus the Lord and if you don't settle that first in your heart when trouble comes you'll fall over you cannot speak for Jesus if you're indecisive about whether you really want to follow him it won't work it can't work and so many Christians try to live a double life they have a kind of respect and sympathy for Jesus they want to look like a Christian they know it's good to follow Jesus but it's like their legs are tied together and they never do anything this is what Peter's warned against these are courageous inspiring words do not fear what they fear but set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart we're not talking about some lame person here who talks a good story we're talking about Jesus who says come follow me this is Christ the Lord who invites you to forsake sin and stop dithering and follow him wholeheartedly we need to do that don't we I, 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 do you know if I'm speaking honestly I don't want this church to be a place where you can feel safe and pretend to live for Jesus while secretly not if that's where you are I want you to feel uncomfortable this is important I don't want this church to be wet and weak and double minded do not fear what they fear do not be frightened but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord there isn't a Christian who's ever lived who has made a difference to anything who either gave in to fear or who tried to live a double life Peter's warning them isn't he this will make you stay silent fear and indecision very quickly I said the last two points are practical I just want you to notice with me uh, the rest of this 15 and 16 there are two other things here that will maybe keep us silent the third one is just lack of being prepared Peter says here always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have this is very practical isn't it Peter is really saying I want you to be ready I want you to be ready sometimes we miss opportunities to speak for Jesus because we're not looking for them and when they come we're not ready Peter doesn't say you know I want you to be ready to do a good turn for people who need it that's good and has its place Peter is saying to him I want you to be ready to speak the gospel is about words you need to be able to explain what the gospel is and that needs preparation there's one writer who um, has written a book about this called Mark Diva I think it's been added to the apprentices reading list for this year so I'm hoping they're going to read this book maybe at some point there's so many books on the list you're never going to read them all but I think this is a really crucial book and this guy Mark Davis says he asks all his church members I've told you this before he says to them can you explain to me what the gospel is in 30 seconds 
maybe I should do that come around and say what's the gospel 30 seconds could you, could you answer that question if someone asked you what does it mean to you to be a Christian well one writer said this the gospel message is simple you need to be able to tell a person what sin is and what sin has done in alienating us from God you need to be able to tell a person who Christ is and how he bore our sins through his death and resurrection and you need to be able to tell them how they can accept God's gift of eternal life and forgiveness through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus that's the gospel could you learn some key verses from the Bible to illustrate each of those points could you jot that down on a card so that if someone asked you what do you believe as a Christian you can say let me get my Bible and show you this is the gospel in a nutshell you need to be ready to do that and it takes work and effort and preparation sometimes I think we're very worried about not being able to answer everyone's questions sometimes it is okay to say I don't know I don't know know that I I love that story of the blind man and the gospels who Jesus healed of his blindness and they hauled him up into the into the court the religious court and, and, the, and they're asking him all sorts of complicated questions and in the end he just says I don't know but one thing I do know once I was blind and now I can see <laughs> isn't that a great answer I don't know all the answers to all your clever questions but I know this I was blind and he made me see that's all you need to know well sometimes it's good isn't it for us to say I don't know but I'll find out one minister I've never tried this but one minister I was reading this week said this that when, when he gets into debates with people about questions he says to them if I can resolve this question will you commit yourself to Jesus Christ it's a good question that isn't it or, or he'll say if you read the Bible and say to God show me that this is true and he does show you will you obey it often a person's resistance is not really the desire to know answers is it it's moral this is the issue with the gospel isn't it we don't want to respond to the gospel and that's why it's hard sometimes well maybe as a practical application you could make it your aim to pray for God to lead you to one person that you could speak to about Jesus if we all did that church would double and then if we all did it again church would double again if we all did that again I think in two years there'd be 10,000 people got to be realistic can we but you know what I mean pray people are converted one by one are you praying that God will lead you to someone that you could nudge them along towards Jesus and share the gospel with them one last point I think another thing that maybe um, helps is to realise that you can't speak for Jesus and live an inconsistent life part of it is how you say what you say and it's here in verse 16 he says do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed 
did you notice he said do it with gentleness and respect even when you do speak be sensitive be a good listener it's it's not good to bash people with the gospel is it do it with gentleness be clear but be gentle and respectful but also it's true isn't it that an inconsistent life will kill your witness stone dead guilt will kill your confidence how can you speak for Christ if your life isn't pure how can you speak for Christ if you're being rude and aggressive how can you speak for Jesus if it's obvious to everyone that there's unresolved sin in your own life I read an interesting illustration about this Um, there was a Christian lady who lived in Kenya who had a young Kenyan boy she hired a young Kenyan boy to be like a house uh, boy like a servant in the house and after three months this boy came to her and said could could he have a letter of reference uh, to a friendly sheikh that he'd been corresponding with because he was going to go and work for the sheikh as a Muslim and the baroness didn't really want the boy to leave just when he'd learnt the ropes after three months so she offered to increase his pay and the boy said oh no it's not about the pay he said I've decided that I'm either going to become a Christian or a Muslim and uh, I didn't know how to decide so I thought the best way to decide would be to work for a Christian for three months and see how a Christian behaved and then go for three months to work with the sheikh who's a Muslim and to observe how he lived and then he was going to decide which religion he would follow well the baroness was stunned as she recalled all the times in that three months that she behaved poorly and she could only say why didn't you tell me that at the beginning Peter here is telling you that at the beginning you can't be speaking for Jesus if your life is inconsistent I'm not talking about being perfect here no one's perfect I'm talking about facing the right way putting Jesus as Lord and wanting to live for him well we're done Peter's encouragement then here is that we shouldn't shrink back into our shells the four things that will stop you speaking for Jesus in a hostile world don't give in to fear but trust the Lord and be eager to do what is right don't be indecisive and hesitant but set apart Jesus as Lord and don't be unprepared but train yourself to do what you can don't be inconsistent but make sure that your words and your life match up